I don't remember when my parents first told me the story. I must have been in high school, if not older, because the details would have been too disturbing to share with a younger kid. In February 1970, a friend of theirs, 22-year-old Bill Sprout, had been brutally murdered in his apartment just off the campus of Ohio State University in Columbus. Also killed in the apartment was 20-year-old Mary Petrie, who'd been dating Bill and was visiting him for the weekend from Cincinnati. It was a double homicide described by one veteran police officer at the time as one of the most violent and disturbing crime scenes he'd ever witnessed. A bowling ball was reported to be one of the murder weapons. Wire hangers had been used as binding. The wire twisted so tight that pliers might have been used. And both victims had been strangled and stabbed more than a dozen times each. My parents said people drew comparisons at the time to the Manson murders of the year before. It was a crime that bloody, that apparently senseless. My dad was one of the first people called to the scene by Bill's roommate, another friend, who'd discovered the bodies. My dad didn't go inside. Instead, he was picked up and questioned by the cops, who'd arrived about the same time. The police let him go, but memories of the crime itself never let go of my parents. They never stopped wondering why. Why Mary and Bill, both quiet, reserved students of French on their way to careers in academia, had been killed in the first place? And why so violently? And maybe the biggest why of all, why hadn't the crime ever been solved? Once I decided to start looking into the murders myself, 50 years later, those remained compelling questions. What I didn't expect was all the other issues that would come up too about ownership of DNA evidence, and whether just police or also victims' families should have a say in how and when it's tested, and the mechanics of what it takes to get a cold case reinvestigated in an age when police departments are having trouble just filling open positions, let alone expanding, amid an ever-growing backlog of unsolved crimes. This podcast will explore all of that, but let's start with how it all started for me, with my parents' memories. The story starts just after high school for my mom. It was 1970, and my mom, Holly, was an undergraduate student at The Ohio State University in Columbus. She was a year or two into dating my dad, Philip, who studied at another state school, the University of Akron, about two hours away. On Friday, February 27th that year, my dad drove down to spend the weekend with my mom, as he often did. It was a pretty typical late winter day in Ohio. Gray, windy, about 35 or 40 degrees. I recorded them talking about it during a long road trip when we'd have few distractions. That's why you hear the sound of the highway in the background. What happened from there? Well, yeah, where this breaks down is it was any other Friday night until, you know, it wasn't. Right, Philip? I mean, yeah, we must have had something to must, eat. Yeah, I must have eaten. It seemed like, like you were cooking something out in the kitchen. I don't remember going out. Well, Leslie did. Leslie and Nancy, maybe they loved green beans. So there were often green beans cooking. <laughs> My mom lived on East 13th Street in Columbus, in what was then and still is a student neighborhood. 
Leslie and Nancy were two of her roommates, and she had two others, all women. Eventually, just a week after this story took place, the landlord would kick my mom and her roommates out because he kept seeing, quote, yellow marijuana smoke wafting from the windows, which my mom says was a gross exaggeration, for the record. What was the scene in your apartment? I mean, were you guys pretty bohemian? Did you you have... Um, We were hippies. You know, I don't know if bohemian wasn't the word then. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, we all had very long, straight hair, so that was part of it. Bell-bottom jeans, desert boots were the thing. You know, no makeup. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Lots of music being played. Oh, yeah, always music. Mom and Dad planned to spend the weekend doing what they always did, hanging out at home with her friends, playing pinochle, and listening to music. The Doors and Janis Joplin were some of their favorites. Maybe ordering a pizza if they felt like splurging. The next day, again typical of college kids, everybody slept in late. Nancy's boyfriend Tom, who'd also spent the night and had the nickname Gort for reasons no one can remember, walked back to his own apartment on West 8th Avenue, about three-quarters of a mile away. He shared the place with his roommate, Bill Sprout. Bill's girlfriend, Mary Petrie, was visiting for the weekend. Rather than hanging out with the rest of the gang at my mom's apartment, the two of them had chosen to stay home, wanting some time to themselves. At about 12.30 p.m. on Saturday, the phone in my mom's apartment rang. It was Gort. But instead of wanting to talk to Nancy, he immediately asked for my dad. And he said, I need to talk to Philip. Like, he just called and immediately said that? Yeah. Yeah. Did, did she seem upset? Well, it was did... unusual. I don't think he told her anything. No. It was unusual, though. And it became clear almost immediately because Gort's first sentence to you. Yeah, there's dead people here or something. Something along those lines. Dead bodies, yeah. And of course, that freaked me out. I just said, well, he wanted me to come over. And so I'll be right over, you know. And I walked or ran over, probably ran, I guess. The four of us, I remember huddling and hugging and crying. Um, Trying to imagine, you know, but not wanting to. What happened? It took my dad 10 or 15 minutes tops to get to Gort's apartment. By the time he arrived, the house was a crime scene. When I got there, it was the police were already there, and it was roped off with those yellow tape things. And I walked through the tapes, and the cops immediately grabbed me and put me in the car, the police car, wanted to know, you know what I was doing. And I told them he called, and I was just coming over. My dad's memories get a little hazy from there. Not surprising, given that in the space of less than half an hour, he'd gone from spending a normal Saturday morning with his girlfriend to having a bunch of cops treating him with suspicion in a double murder. Because that's what it was, a double murder. Gort had come home to find both Bill and Mary brutally killed, bound, stabbed, and bludgeoned to death in a scene so horrific that Gort would tell one reporter he'd initially thought he'd seen three bodies, not just two. (laughs) 
This is Mary and Bill, an Ohio cold case. Episode 1, Their Deaths Still Haunt. Eventually, the cops let my dad go. It wasn't until the next day, when the newspapers came out, that my parents found out the awful details. Mary and Bill had both been stabbed more than a dozen times. Bill's hands and feet had been bound with coat hangers, twisted so tight the police thought the killer may have used pliers. And Mary's head had been bashed in. Police believe it was with a bowling ball found lying near her body. It was horrifying beyond you know, anything that any of us had ever experienced or knew of. Nobody knew who did it or motivation or anything. There was no motivation because nothing had been stolen, nothing, you know. So that's part of what made it so terrifying, I guess, the randomness of it. No motivation. According to the newspapers, both Bill's wallet and Mary's billfold were found in the apartment, empty of cash. But these were students living in a low-rent, off-campus apartment. So the likelihood that the killer got much, if any, cash, or that burglary was the primary motive, is pretty slim. The papers originally reported that Mary had been raped. But a couple of days later, police said, in fact, there was no physical evidence to support rape, though she may have been, quote, otherwise sexually assaulted. It was all so awful, so gruesome, so senseless, my parents said, that there were rumors on campus it might have been a cult killing, maybe a copycat of the infamous Manson murders that had happened the year before. Five persons, including actress Sharon Tate, were found dead at the home of Miss Tate. Or that the killer had been having a bad trip on some sort of hallucinogenic drug, like LSD, which was popular at the time. With LSD, the user believes he is discovering inner truth, that he is making a pilgrimage to the soul. But if it were a random drug or cult killing, there was one piece that didn't fit, the paper said. There were no signs of struggle in the apartment, no sign of forced entry, no scattered papers or knocked over furniture. That, combined with the overkill, the fact that they'd been hurt so many times in so many different ways, could point to someone who knew Mary or Bill or both. A crime of passion by someone intimate with either or both of them. Someone they trusted enough to let inside. No one knew of any enemies that either Mary or Bill had, nor anyone that would have wanted to hurt them. Friends described them both as quiet, serious students. Straight-laced, a little introverted, which is why they weren't hanging out with my mom and dad and the rest of the gang that Friday night. One of the main things that drew them together was their love of French language and culture. Bill was a graduate student in French at Ohio State, and Mary was an undergrad majoring in French at the College of Mount St. Joseph in Cincinnati. As far as anyone knew, they weren't into drugs, weren't into gambling, nothing that would have singled them out as potential victims. Basically, the newspaper said the cops had no good suspects. One of the more peculiar details from the murders jogged what had once been an innocent memory for my mom. 
One night, the previous fall, she and Nancy had gone over to Bill and Gort's for dinner. So I remember sitting in the living room and laughing about the bowling ball with the umbrellas in it. The bowling ball that police believe was later used as a murder weapon. The guys were using it as an umbrella holder with umbrellas stuck in the finger holes. An innocent conversation piece, quirky and unexpected. No one could have guessed it would have been used for something so horrible. Yeah, what a clever idea that was. You know, there were two umbrellas. As I recall, two guys lived there. So that makes sense. From there, everything changed and everything stayed the same. My mom and her roommates finished out the term at Ohio State. Their landlord kicked them out of the apartment for that alleged yellow marijuana smoke the weekend after the murders. And my mom says now the change of setting probably helped them cope. But they still cried together sometimes about what had happened to their friend Bill and his girlfriend. And the nightmares, the sense of random danger being around the corner, that kept up for weeks or even months. My dad returned to Akron, where he experienced one echo of that awful weekend his first day back in class. And I was in the class, and these two policemen came into the room and interrupted the class told the teacher they wanted to speak to Philip Glanville. <laughs> so, so they got me and pulled me out of the class, put me in the cruiser and took me down to the station and asked me the same kind of questions they'd asked me before, and they also fingerprinted me. He says it didn't feel good being under suspicion, but he'd never even been inside Bill's apartment. He figured if police were using fingerprints as evidence, he wasn't too worried about remaining a suspect for long. And in fact, he never heard another word from the Columbus police. They never contacted him again, not even to tell him he was cleared. And my dad never reached out, thinking he'd leave well enough alone. As for Gort, Bill's roommate, he moved in with Nancy and my mom before they changed apartments. But he only stayed a few days, and he wasn't long for Columbus either. He was so haunted by what had happened and what he'd seen, he told my mom and her roommates that he had to start over. He ended up transferring to a different graduate school in Florida. Nancy finished out the term at Ohio State, but followed him that summer. The two of them eventually got married, and Nancy came to my mom and dad's wedding the summer of 1970. But they and my parents fell out of touch eventually, as young people do. And that, as far as my parents were concerned, was just about the end of the story. Apart from the initial coverage in the newspapers, they never heard anything more about the investigation. They didn't know whether the crime had ever been solved or if anyone had ever been arrested. The horrible story of what happened to Mary and Bill came up a few times over the years, mostly when my parents were reminiscing about their time in college. I think for me, the child of baby boomers, the murder stood out not just because it was so terrifying, and it was, it was terrifying even all those years later, but because it was symbolic of how chaotic and violent the era of my parents' youths was. Aside from the Manson murders, the late 1960s and early 1970s were the time of the Vietnam War, the assassinations of Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. Has been shot. Is that Uprisings by oppressed African Americans in big cities. 
the Kent State University shootings, which happened just a few months after Marionville's murders, where the Ohio National Guard shot four unarmed students dead during a war protest. The guardsmen opened fire on the students. But unlike all those famous incidents, the murders of Mary and Bill seem to have been almost completely forgotten. There was an intense flood of media coverage in early March 1970, right after the murders, and then the newspapers fell mostly silent. In one brief follow-up article from August 1970, a Columbus police officer told a reporter that enough time had passed without any strong leads that he felt there was, quote, little chance for a solution. Reading what had been published, I came away feeling that Mary and Bill deserved more. Their families deserved more. Justice, yes, but also answers about what really happened that night and why. Not that there could ever be a justification for something so horrific, but maybe an explanation. Insanity, for example. The rumored bad drug trip or Manson copycat. And I wanted this young couple who'd had their lives ripped away from them to be remembered, not just as murder victims, as dead bodies carried out of a house on a gray February afternoon, but as people. To dive further into the case, the first thing I did was make public records requests for both the original police reports from the Columbus Police Department and the original autopsy reports from the coroner's office. I buckled in to wait weeks for that paperwork to come back to me. You know, government bureaucracy and red tape and all that. I was surprised by the swiftness and, well, eagerness of the response. Detective Dana A. Kroom from the Columbus Police Homicide Unit emailed me back within days. He said that he and his boss, Sergeant Terry McConnell, would be in Cleveland the next day on another matter and that they could meet me to give me a copy of the original police report if I liked. That struck me as odd. What cop wants to deliver a police report in person? But I agreed, thinking this could also be a chance to request to interview them on the record about the case. The next afternoon, we met up at a coffee shop. And to my surprise, instead of me asking them questions about the case, Detective Kroom pulled out a notepad and started asking me what I knew. What had my mom and dad told me about the murders over the years? Why was I so interested? Then they asked to talk to my parents, right then. I was kind of taken aback, to be honest, and I said no. I didn't want to just show up on my parents' doorstep with a couple of police officers without giving them any sort of notice. I said, I will ask them to call to set up another time to talk to you, though. And the cops reluctantly agreed. At this point, I didn't have much reason to believe they talked to me on the record about the case, but I asked anyway. They said no, they would not comment on an open case, and we parted, but not before Detective Kroom handed over a printed copy of the original police report. My consolation prize, I guess. And they told me that although the case had never been closed, as a result of my inquiry, they were actively investigating it again. Maybe I'd watched too many Alfred Hitchcock movies as a kid, but the whole thing felt like a scene from North by Northwest or The Wrong Man. Like, I and my family were suddenly and wrongfully under suspicion. Worst of all, I felt like I was the one responsible for dragging my parents into something that was going to be deeply unpleasant for them. 
I got in my car and skimmed through the report. Two reports, actually, one each for Mary and Bill. I was surprised by how brief they were, just a couple of paragraphs each, no longer than what I filed the last time I got in a car accident. But pretty quickly, I realized why the cops had probably acted the way they did. As brief as the reports were, there were two people mentioned by name besides Mary and Bill themselves. One was Tom McGuigan, Bill's roommate, Gort, who'd discovered their bodies. The second was my dad. Um, all right, well, thanks for like taking a little time to go over these with me. I got together with my editor, Mike McIntyre. There's so many questions. And producer, Mary Facto, yeah. to take a look at the reports, all two handwritten pages of them. These things are not really long. I think what they are is kind of like the summary report. You know, it's pretty brief. It says, here's what we found, and that's basically it. I bet you they have a whole lot more detail in these more extensive reports that are part of their investigation. Yeah. Well, if you look at the top, there's two punch holes. So that kind of tells me they pulled this out of it like a big dossier or something. Oh, of yeah. Stuff. And yeah, you can kind of see it's like folded over. One of the reports quotes Tom, accounting for his whereabouts the night before. It says uh, he spent the night at 180 East 13th with some girls and a Mr. Philip Glanville. A Mr. Philip Glanville. Not a direct statement that he was a suspect, but the implication was clear. I wonder, Justin, when you saw it, your dad's name, did it just kind of like stop you cold just to see the name? Yeah, especially since these reports are literally like a paragraph. So... The fact that my dad is named in mm-hmm. such a brief summary report told, like, it, it did. It, it did stop me cold, Mike, to be like, well, gosh, they, they thought he was an important enough figure in all this to put his name in the summary report. And so when you get this call from a Justin Glanville many, many, many years later and you have this open case that's been sitting around for 30 years, you think, wait a minute, Glanville, we just saw that name in the report or when they looked it up and saw it, then you would think maybe he's, why is he reaching out? Yeah. You know, there must yeah. be some connection there, so. Yeah, and you know, my dad had told me that he was a suspect. You know, they, they did take him down to the police station and I was like, am I starting all of that all over for him again, you know. Eventually, I drove over to see my parents and break the news to my dad that his son had maybe just made him an active suspect in a murder investigation. Fortunately, they were a lot calmer about the whole thing than I was. My dad reminded me that he'd been through all of this before, 50 years ago. He'd been cleared of suspicion back then, he said, and he was pretty sure that would happen again now. He was fine talking to the cops again, he said, if they thought it would help. What he said he was concerned about was that he wouldn't have anything really significant or helpful to tell them. There's a Starbucks here. I don't know if there's one at the next place, so... That same concern surfaced on a gray February weekend, about a month before the coronavirus pandemic shut down the world. My parents and I piled into a car and started the three-hour drive to the small city of Jackson, Michigan, to visit Martha Petrie. You had coffee yet today? Martha is Mary's identical twin sister. I'd emailed her to ask about getting together around the same time I'd asked for the police reports. She'd written back the next day to say, yes, she wanted to meet me. And she wanted to meet my parents too, to see what they remembered. Although Mary's and Bill's murders were almost 50 years ago, she wrote, their deaths still haunt me in many ways. 
On the drive up across the flat forests and farm fields of Northwest Ohio and Southern Michigan, I asked them how they were feeling. So we're about half an hour away. How are you guys, how are you guys feeling now? I guess sort of looking forward to it. Oh yeah? I'm more curious about it, I guess, than looking forward to it. Yeah. Not as nervous as I was. I wasn't real nervous yesterday. But there, like I feel, I don't feel nervous at all now, just maybe a little bit, just because I'm not sure how this is going to go. I'm afraid she's going to be disappointed that we don't have anything of real substance to offer. So I hope her hopes aren't real high. The only thing I was thinking this morning is just that I hope I can approach things in a way that makes everyone feel comfortable awkward to start with, I think, and then, you know, hopefully that's it'll true. start flowing. That's, yeah. a good, that's a good way to put it, because that normalizes it. Of course, it's yeah. going to be awkward. This is not an everyday yeah. situation. I was nervous, because by meeting Martha and asking for her memories and knowledge, I was committing to this project in a new way. I was moving from poking around on the internet to actually talking to victims' family members. And with that came a sense of responsibility. I was aware that I might be raising Martha's hopes that I could bring some resolution to this case, when that was a long shot at best, especially considering I'd never looked into a cold case before. Continue on East Prospect Street for three quarters of a mile. It was late morning when we drove into the town of Jackson. I'd never been there before, but it looked very familiar to me. A homey Eastern Great Lakes mix of Victorian houses, old storefront buildings, and fast food places. Martha's block looked like it may be dated from the 1920s or 30s. Tidy tree lawns, brick front walks, flower pots on front stoops. My parents and I knocked on the front door. Hi. It's good to see you. It's good to see you. And Martha invited us in. My first impression was one of energy. She was on the shorter side, maybe five foot two with short hair and crinkly eyes that were no stranger to laughter, and maybe tears, too. She started showing my parents and me framed photographs on her wall of family members. This is Eamon. Eamon is my son. They live in Brooklyn, New York. The conversation felt both warm and, yeah, a little awkward, as we predicted. It seemed like everyone was wondering what this visit was going to be like, as eager to start the real talk as we were to put it off. But eventually, we did get around to sitting down at Martha's dining room table. We started out talking about what we all wanted from having this conversation, opening up this old trauma. Martha said for her, it wasn't so much about bringing someone to justice, especially since 50 years later, the person who did it could very well be dead. It was about getting answers, she said. Because I don't like that shadow. Why was this person willing to hurt th these other people? I would just... So I don't care whether that person ends up in jail or whatever. Uh, I would just like that to be resolved. Does that make sense? I would just like closure. Yeah. I don't want, uh, it's not like I'm uh, judgmental or mm -hmm. punishing. I would just like that to be solved. I think that's what, so yeah, I think that's, that's what, what everybody said. wants. That's right? on the way up. It felt good to know we were all starting from the same goal. From there, we moved on. Martha started by sharing some stories about growing up with Mary as identical twins. Like how at their last Christmas dinner together in 1969, 
The two of them happened to be at a place in their lives when their hair and weight and taste in clothing were especially similar. And at that Christmas dinner, which was our last Christmas dinner together, we thought that if my father or my mother or anybody called us by the wrong name, we would just pretend to be the other twin. So I talked all about France. I talked about Bill. <laughs> In reality, though, Martha said she and Mary could not have been more different. All of my life, I had tried to be different than Mary. So bright, so brilliant, so intellectual, so French-focused, so directive, and so... I was the liberal rebel. So, so, <laughs> so Mary, I'm working in a shoe factory during the summer, and Mary's getting awards for being the best international student at the oh, Sorbonne. Oh, makes you a better person oh, somehow just, shoe it factory. Can't <laughs> <laughs> Martha's talking about the summer of 1968, when Mary, as a rising college sophomore, spent the summer studying in France. When Mary was a sophomore in college, the chair of the French department his wife and they are having twins. So Dr. Tom takes a six weeks leave of absence. And who is the person who's taking over all of his classes? Mary. The following year, as a college junior, Mary spent a whole semester in France. In college, you might have thought what your pathway was. Even you, Justin, might have thought your pathway was. Mary did not have a doubt in the world about her pathway. She was going to marry Bill. She was going to teach at one of the Catholic high schools. She was going to teach secondary education until both of them could go over to France and live their lives. Boom. Eventually, we settled into talking about the murders. Martha said she felt strongly that the murderer was not a stranger to Bill and Mary because of the brutal nature of their murders. Why would someone unknown to them take the time to do all those awful things. And she also believed there may have been more than one perpetrator. I want to walk in and I perpetrate a murder and I have to keep you away from Nancy because I'm going to do it to both of you. And how do we do that? How do we do that? Because there are two other people in the room. I mean, how does somebody from off the street come in, hang her you to a chair, rape my sister, murder you, murder her? They say there's no signs of struggle there. And no signs of anything lost, no signs of burglary, no signs of anything. There is the murderous mind, right? There is the serial killer who can plan all of this. But there is also this sense for me of somebody who knows these people. Because the brutal murder. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Martha asked us that question again and again. Maybe because so much of this case doesn't. To Martha, or me, or anyone. Does that make sense? And have them watch each other's. I mean, I can't, oh my gosh. Think of the person you love best in the world, and you're seeing them murdered, or vice versa, or murdered in parts, you know. You're stabbed, and then you're stopped, And you're in the bedroom, and you're strapped to a chair. and that pain that that causes me. Can I just say all murder is insane? (laughs) So, but trying to imagine that as a person you love, their last moments, uh, sometimes I think, I'm so glad that they experienced this together and in love. 
Think about it that way. I asked Martha if she'd heard about the police ever getting close to making an arrest in the case. She said no, though she did hear at one point that a prison escapee was under investigation. Other than that, she said she'd barely heard from or spoken to law enforcement since the crime happened, except for one time in the early 2000s. They said, well, you know, we looked at the, because of new technology, now they can do this infrared thing and they can find um, sperm smears and DNA. So they traced the DNA through all of the criminal courts and there was no match. There was no match of somebody who was previously or currently incarcerated who had this DNA match. It was encouraging to hear that there was DNA evidence in the case, though. Martha thought it was collected from some semen left on a bedspread. There are advances all the time in DNA technology to solve cold cases. So if there is good quality DNA in this case, it could well lead to a breakthrough. Martha said after the murders, everyone suffered, of course. But Bill's parents, who stayed in touch with the Petrie family for a while, felt a very specific layer of torment. Bill's parents were so sorrowful because they thought that we, my family, the Petrie family, would blame them. He's a male. He, why didn't he protect? Oh my gosh. Why? So... And I would try, I would say, there isn't any blame. Do you know, whoever committed this, committed it on both of them. As we got close to wrapping up our conversation, Martha asked me to look behind my chair. There, on top of an old wooden storage cabinet, was a photograph of Mary with the family dog, taken the Christmas before she was murdered. And there, by the way, is a picture of Mary on her dog. Do you see Mary? I see her. Oh my gosh, what a beautiful picture. Mary looked happy, loving. Her by now familiar blonde hair and wide smile nuzzled against the dog's fur. It was a heartbreaking image of innocence, of having mercifully no clue what the near future holds. I couldn't help my mind from thinking, if only. If only you hadn't gone to Columbus that weekend, Mary. If only you and Bill had met somewhere other than his apartment. It was probably a tiny fraction of the if-onlys that had run through Martha's thoughts the last 50 years. Martha also asked me to open a drawer at the bottom of the old cabinet. The inside is stuffed with old newspaper articles about the case, including a few I hadn't seen. And I have never taken them out of that bottom drawer. I mean, that's where my father put them, that's where they stay. Yeah. There's some symbolism in that, (laughs) seeing the light of day. We're just about to walk out when Martha says something off the cuff. So Justin, I'm sorry that you were called in on this case. I'm sorry you were called in on this case. Martha said it with a lighthearted tone, but I felt she was also explicitly giving me that responsibility I half feared, half wanted when I first contacted her. To do right by her sister and by Bill. Okay. All right. Thank you. I will. Yes. I will. Okay. All right. Okay. Bye. You want to take a little walk or you want to get going? 
Uh, Maybe on the way home we could stop. We can take a walk when we're charging. As my parents and I drove away, we rehashed some of what we heard. For me, the most valuable parts of the conversation were learning more about Mary as a person and confirming that her twin sister, the person who was probably closest to her in the world, aside from Bill, wanted new attention on the case. She wanted it because it could lead to, in her words, answers and closure. So she wouldn't have to wonder anymore why and how and who. But I knew that even if she ever got those answers, it was no guarantee she'd feel at peace about the case. Often, there's no clear way to truly close the book on this sort of trauma. Maybe in part because there is no satisfactory explanation for a crime of this level of violence. If this case could ever be solved through DNA or otherwise, what would it mean for Martha and the rest of Mary's family, and Bill's family too? What would it mean for their friends, or people who were indirectly involved that weekend, like my parents, or even me, a generation removed? What would it mean for the police officers who have inherited the case through generations, or for you, the listener? Maybe answers create some extra little bit of peace in all our lives. Maybe we'd rest easier if the facts behind something so awful could finally be known. Maybe it would represent a move incrementally closer to the day when no one could do something like murder two people and get away with it. Next time on Mary and Bill, an Ohio cold case, I talked to Bill's sister about her memories of the crime and the investigation. My family didn't have the money to hire, you know, lawyers out there and private investigators. And it was just you trusted your the, the police department to take care of everything. And I tour the Columbus apartment where the murders occurred. At some point, and I don't know when the timing of this, there was a fireplace here, which you can see behind this wall. If you have information about the murders of Bill Sprout or Mary Petrie, please contact the Columbus Police Homicide Case Review Unit at 614-645-4036. Or get in touch with me via our website, ideastream.org slash Bill. Mary and Bill, an Ohio cold case, is an IdeaStream public media podcast in partnership with the Ohio Newsroom. It's reported and written by me, Justin Glanville, with production and sound design by John Nungesser and Mary Fecto. Mike McIntyre and Natalie Pillsbury are our editors. Our digital team is Annie Wu and Ryan Lowe, with graphic design and art by Lauren Green. Music is by Beyonce. Marketing by Matt Ehrman, Pat Miller, Matt Crow, and Anna Garvin, with support from Evergreen Podcasts. Thanks to Marlene Harris-Taylor, Mark Rosenberger, and Claire Roth. For photos, a timeline of this case, and a document library, visit our website at ideastream.org slash Mary and Bill.